Hello, South Byers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Andrew Zimmern ahead of his appearance at South by Southwest 2022. On that subject, you can check out all of my coverage of South by this year. Have some great conversations that have already been done. Some coming up by going to booksonpod.com and clicking the SXSW 2022 button at the top of the page. And to stay up to date with the podcast, make sure to follow us on social media at booksonpod. Hello, South Byers. Andrew Zimmern is an Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and humanitarian. His current endeavors include hosting the Magnolia Network's Family Dinner, serving as Goodwill Ambassador for the UN's World Food Program, and his excellent sub-stack, which is titled Spilled Milk. And he'll be taking part in this year's South by Southwest, discussing the future intersections of food, culture, and technology on March 16th. More info, check out sxsw.com and andrewzimmern.com. Andrew, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. So this is your fifth time to participate at South by Southwest. Last year, of course, was fully digital. Uh, and uh, you were a part of the in-person festival back in 2019. Considering the festival appearances, the numerous episodes of TV you shot here, and I know last year when we talked, you mentioned having a cousin and some friends in town as well. I have to imagine you're pretty excited to finally get back to Austin after so long. I love Austin, one of my favorite cities in America. Um, great restaurants, great people, a lot of fun, uh, fantastic music. Um, and, and for someone like me who loves to travel, um, you know, I, I enjoy different cultures. I, I live in Minnesota. I'm from New York. Texas is different. Austin is different than a lot of Texas. Uh, but my, my great joys of being able to eat wonderful foods and listen to live music um, makes Austin one of my favorite destinations. And culture is part of the focus of the panel discussion you're taking part in on March 16th. That's Wednesday from 1130 to 1230 p.m. People can go to sxsw.com to find out more about this. You're part of an, a, an impressive four-person panel in a session titled The Future Intersections of Food, Technology, and Culture. You and Bourdain are obviously uh, the two OGs from my generation and fostering a greater appreciation for other cultures through food something that you've continued to evolve with What's Eating America and now Family Dinner, which is in the middle of season two on Magnolia Network right now. These shows have, uh, have the past and present of food and culture covered, but considering the title of this year's session, how do you think food and culture are going to intersect in the future in a way that we're maybe not necessarily thinking about right now? Uh, I, I think that on, on one hand, the gap is widening. Um, I should say the other panels that I'm taking apart, I'm doing some, some work there with a, uh, uh, a vegan chicken uh, company that I'm a part of called Tyndall. I'm also taking part in this aquaculture panel that I've been doing now for five years where we cover the same things, just more precisely in, in terms of aquaculture. So this, this other panel that I'm taking part in on the 16th about the future of food and the intersection of culture is of extreme interest and importance to me. So let me just give you one example of why that is. It's extremely simplistic, uh, but I think it's really, really important. 
if we want to change uh, our outcomes for our children and for, for young people like yourself, we have to immediately stop polluting our planet. And I mean that in the most general uh, and complete of all sentences, right? There's a hundred thousand ways we're doing it uh, from plastics, which I think it, I just, we were fine before plastics were invented. I don't understand why we, we need to use them. Uh, I understand their benefits in medical equipment and you know the surgical room and stuff like that. That's fantastic. And then let's recycle those, but let's just get them out of food. Let's get plastic bags gone in a way. I mean, I just, we can put a man on the moon. We can figure out a cheap and expensive bag that is 100% uh, compostable and recyclable. There are many options out there like ones made out of bamboo, but we're killing our planet, right? In, in a thousand different ways. So if we wanna make a change there, let's say we wanna do it by eliminating all of those single use plastics, or let's say we wanna do it uh, by uh, reducing our, uh, our food footprint when it comes to meat production by 50% and human consumption of meat by 50% and go smaller. Or let's say we wanted to use this opportunity. There's a horrific war going on right now. We're recording this several days before the, uh, my appearance at the festival. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, essentially there's a shooting war in Western Europe. Uh, this could erupt, I mean, nuclear powers are involved. This could uh, turn into a horrific proxy war already is in a sense between the USA and Russia, could go nuclear. I mean, it's, it's horrifying to me. This is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. So let's say we want to use this opportunity uh, to just go green from a uh, transportation sense, right? Cars, let's just go all electric cars and build high-speed trains in America, right? The positive impacts of any of those three ideas in three different silos, right, would mean a titanic shift in cultural attitude in America, right? Let's keep it confined to food, which is something that this talk is specializing in. I mentioned those other issues so people understand the type of cultural shifts that need to happen if we want to make change in America. Let's say we wanted to extend life in America for all Americans and health and wellness. Well, then we should really be eating uh, less meat. A study just came out, uh, a massive one uh, involving many, many, many groups uh, that have told us that a UN report that not only are we killing our planet faster than we thought, but we're also killing ourselves faster than we thought. And if, and if you and I <coughs> started eating uh, a vegan diet, uh, we would extend our uh, lifespan by 16 years. And that even if you started at age 60, which fascinated me because I'm 60, I could extend my life by eight years by average, right? We spend almost $2 trillion a year fighting the, just the big four food-related diseases. So it's in everyone's interest that we do this. If we had more money in those, you know, because we were solving heart disease and, and diabetes by changing diet, 
Why wouldn't we want to do that? If we could live longer by changing our diet, why wouldn't we want to do that? And if, by the way, those had positive net-net effects on our, uh, on our climate crisis, our enduring climate crisis, that would be even better. And if our shift to electric allowed us to move food more efficiently around the country, resulting in cheaper prices and more autonomy, and we ended this farm to freighter economy of ours and stopped calling food grown for human consumption specialty crops, wouldn't that be good for America? You take all those things, they're all good for us. There's, there's no one can argue differently, right? And yet, Social justice movements sufficient to echo change take 25 to 30 years. They, they move at glacial speed, right? So it's the culture that's actually the biggest issue. We have the skill. We don't have the will as a people to make these changes. We have the information that tells everyone that it's something that is of, of massive necessity. If we allow our planet to warm too much, the changes are just gonna be astronomical. And we had thought a couple of years ago that we had till 2050, we've now found out we have till about 2035, but all of the changes that uh, have been agreed upon by international governments uh, aren't sufficient to, to uh, restrict that warming by 2035. So consequently, uh, we are, we're dooming ourselves on planet earth. Uh, it, I'm shocked beyond shocked. It's an, it, it's an actual existential issue. I mean, people use that term all the time, existential, but that is one that actually does by definition threaten our very existence on this planet. We're also going to, what is it? Double, double plus our population by 2050. Um, how are you going to feed this planet? So we have, to, we have to make changes and we have to make them now. So the fascinating part to me is someone who studies and lives in and observes food and culture is we have the knowledge, we know what we have to do and we have to change it. How do we change the culture faster? I'll give you two examples. Uh, when I was little, uh, you know, 10 years old, we bought another family, the second family station wagon. And the first thing my dad did before we all climbed in to take the first ride is he took the, the seat belts that were lying on the front seat. It was one sort of sofa seat in the front. This is 1969. And he shoves the seat belts in between the front, you know, in the crease, in between the, the top of the seat and the, and the bottom. Because nobody, seatbelts, who wears seatbelts? Now, this was a vehicle that used to have the littlest kids facing the opposite direction. That is correct. That is that exact. Yeah, we had great, one of those station wagons of the 80s. Great station wagon. Great station wagon. So, but, but my point is that the next year in 1970, uh, the first studies came out that showed that seatbelts saved lives. Like not just a few, a lot. And the reason that it was such a massive number was because nobody used seatbelts. So people would get in accidents and there was a very high percentage of people who would die. Those few who were in high-speed accidents, anything above whatever, 40 miles an hour, they lived. 
And it, yet it wasn't until almost 40 years later that we began to have laws requiring seatbelt use. Now, nobody argued then about the things they do today. You can't tell me what to do. You can't restrict my freedom. This is America. You can't tell me what to do because we all know that seatbelts save lives, right? It's very, very simple. But it took 40 years to go from the study that said people not wearing seatbelts, it's killing folks, to actually making the change. Same with smoking, right? Late 60s, early 70s, we learned how bad smoking was for you and chewing tobacco. But it took 36 years, I think, before, well, 28 to 30 years before we enacted laws that put warnings, warnings on the sides of the boxes, and we eliminated uh, advertising of cigarettes on television, right? And other laws have become progressively uh, uh, more strict around the country, state by state. The, the, the bottom line is social change movements go at a glacial speed. We do not have time. We need to change the way we eat, the way we farm, our relationship to food. If that doesn't change, in the next five years, we are royally fucked. Thank God for uh, Ralph Nader on the whole seatbelt thing. As far as uh, big tobacco and some industries like that, it is important that we're able to get a handle on that and get them to stop telling the lies that they had. But one unfortunate byproduct of it all, Andrew, is that a lot of other major corporations learned the script thanks to big tobacco. So you see these same marketing ploys being utilized in so many different avenues of life now that are also they themselves unhealthy. Big food is obviously a great example of this. And so I think that a big part of that is no longer accepting outright lies disguised as advertising and marketing. Well, hold, hold right there. So what's truth? And what is marketing or propaganda, right, has become a big issue in the news over the last five, six years. Huge issue. Leaving the natural way for us to go with that aside, we've always ignored science in America in favor of the almighty dollar. It's been the pursuit of the dollar. But ask anyone who's made money or been successful, it still doesn't fill the hole doesn't make you happy. What makes you happy is, is, you know, how you show up in life for the people you love, doing things that you'll be remembered fondly for. I mean, that's, that's what makes us ha happy, crossing stuff off of our list, right? So thank God we're talking about those issues now. And thankfully, we also understand, and I'm a capitalist, thankfully, we also have some companies out there for whom telling the truth and supplying a solution is of extreme economic benefit to them and to their investors, right? So you have a company like my friend, Josh Tetrix, Just. Uh, he's the, the gentleman whose company invented the, the vegan mayo and then the vegan egg and uh, a lot of other products. Uh, that company, to my mind, despite being valued at gazillions of dollars, and I think it's still the fastest growing food company in the world, 
um, is, is of huge benefit to America. So big business and to your term, big food doesn't always mean bad. However, there are companies that are still moving at glacial speed and have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new. And I'll give you an example. General Mills, located right here in Minnesota, has been excoriated historically for supplying a lot of foods that are loaded with, you know, you know, fat and salt and fake ingredients and stuff like that. On one hand, they people applaud something like Hamburger Helper because with the addition of an $8 pound of ground meat, you can feed a family of four a meal for under $10, right? If the box is $2 and the meat is seven or $8, for 10 bucks, you have a, a skillet meal that, that has these things in it. Would I like to see General Mills turn Hamburger Helper into one that's chemical-free and loaded with uh, freeze-dried vegetables that have been designed to re retain their nutrition, et cetera? Sure. But I do appreciate companies that have provided inexpensive ways for those who were dollar poor and time poor to eat something efficiently and quickly. They're also excoriated for putting uh, sugar into kids' cereals, and rightfully so. They've slowly begun to dial back. Every couple of years, they make a further reduction in the sugar content of their cereals. But what they're really lousy at doing is telling their own story. The company in, uh, and I believe they lead the world in this, uh, that spends the most money globally researching drought resistant grain is General Mills. And the reason that they do is that their biggest profit center is Big G, their cereals division, right? So they know the, the, the stakeholders at that company understand that they have to find a way to improve the amount of grain that comes into the door as the this climate crisis endures, they have to maintain their supply, right? So they are investing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in research on drought-resistant grain, much of it taking place here in Minnesota and at several other places around the world. Um, it's fascinating to me that a company as big and as powerful as General Mills does both of those things, right? In other words, they they... They won't necessarily transform Hamburger Helper, despite some of its socioeconomic benefits to some people. And I, and I don't want to be, uh, I, I'm not part of the elitist food police. I, I think we do need to figure out ways to feed all Americans healthy food without, without breaking their bank, whatever that is. Um, but at the same time, these companies, General Mills has global distribution, has the ability to move quickly and put new products into the pipeline. They've proved it before. And they're spending the most money of anyone in the world on researching drought-resistant grain. So not only do we need to uh, rejigger our relationship with the American consumer, change popular culture, but we also need to incentivize big food companies, small b, small f. I, I know what you mean when you say big food, because, you know, look, there's, what are there? Four, four meat companies that supply 75% of the meat in America, six food companies that supply almost 80% of the food or distribute that food in America. I mean, it's, it's shocking. Uh, and I'm all for decentralizing our food system. 
but it is, it is of vital importance that we engage with corporate America and begin to change their hearts and minds on these issues too. And if, and I think the way to do that is through the boardroom and, and through the, and, and through the, uh, the lens of capitalism, it makes good business sense for general foods to change every product line in that business that isn't healthy. If you look at the number one uh, uh, food uh, requirement for the youngest generation, of, I, I don't know what we call people 21, 18 to 21. Uh, that we could invent the name right now. I know, we really But amongst, amongst college-age consumers and recent college-age graduates, they're spending a lot of money on food and beverage by percentage of their income, okay? But their number one requirement is transparency, health, and wellness. When you start to look at, at what they actually need in products, and you see a lot of companies growing to change with them. Josh Tetrick didn't start just because he wanted to appeal to people who were my age. He started just because he knew that as consumers age, they would want that product. With more and more people seeing the advantages of eating less meat and going vegetarian and vegan wherever they could, I use Just Mayonnaise. I, I don't have a relationship with the company, by the way. Uh, I use Just Mayonnaise because it tastes great, and it's one less thing that I have to use a chicken, uh, a, a, a real egg in, right? So I'm trying to make changes wherever I can, not only for my own health and well-being, but also to reduce the pressure on foods. I've often said, I've been saying this for 20 years, we need to take we need to skip one meal a week. We need to take food replacement one meal a week. And we have to take one meal out of the wild. That's an entire day. That's one seventh of our food uh, that we consume every week. If every American did that, we would reduce the pressure on, as you say, big food and those factory farms with, you know, CAFO animals and all of that stuff. We would reduce it sufficient to make enough change that we would start to be able to dial back some of the problems we've created over the last hundred years. But we can't even, can't even find a way to do that. Gosh, I realize you and I probably need three hours. There's 20 different places we could go based on these last two answers. However, I am going to plow forward because I need to ask you about this. Some of my favorite people to keep track of on this planet, Andrew, come from so many different walks of life like comedians, athletes, and yes, even food journalists. While I enjoy them because they're funny, they play a sport well, or what they're eating and who they're dining with, I admire, admire them even more because they're humanitarians above all else. And I certainly consider you a part of that list. Your evolution as someone who learns about food on TV is reflective of that. Before we get into some of the specifics of how you've helped people over these last few years, I'm curious, is there any one person or moment in your life that fuels this desire to look out for others? Uh, yeah. Um... It was a cold night uh, here in Minnesota, March of 1992. Um, I was six weeks sober, seven weeks sober. Um, I'm now 30 years plus sober. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I found, a, you know, my 12-step, my, my sponsor in the 12-step group I attend had said, uh, uh, you need to go to a meeting every night. You're a, you're a newcomer. You need to be at a meeting every night of the week. 
And I found a group on Wednesday night and uh, I was told by, you know, someone at that group, get a job at the group. And so when they asked for volunteers to put away chairs at the end of the meeting, I raised my hand and I'm putting away chairs at the end of the meeting. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck does this have to do with not drinking? You know, I mean, I've just, you know, like, like any newcomer, I'm just, I'm conflicted. I'm in pain. I'm resentful. I'm angry. I don't understand what I'm doing, but I promised that I would just do what I was told for six months and then see what happens, then reevaluate. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, at the end of the meeting, as I'm putting away chairs with another newcomer, these two old timers came in and said, uh, hurry up with the chairs. And I was like, oh, is the church closing or something? Or is, you know, building closing? And they said, no, we gotta, we gotta run, we gotta run downtown. You guys gotta come with us, you gotta come with us. And I, I put away the chairs. I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they're like, uh, we got a couple guys at uh, detox that have been there for a couple of days. We're gonna go talk to them. I was like, why are we doing that? And they looked at me and they said, it's service work. How do you think you stay sober? And I said, well, I thought I was just supposed to like not drink, go to meetings every day, do what I was told in those meetings, which is why I'm putting away chairs. And they said, yeah, and we're telling you. The secret is service work. Hmm. It's one of many other things. It's an ecosystem of wellness. If you're doing something for someone else, you can't think about your own pity pot problems, right? Nothing will change your inner attitude than by changing the world around you. Nothing will make you happier than doing things for other people. Now I was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big statement. Well, I became sort of a service addict uh, in my 12-step program. I spent, you know, the better part of the next decade just go volunteering for everything, you know, sponsoring other men, helping where, wherever I could, wherever time allowed. Uh, I had the local intergroup phone in the middle of the night rolled over to my phone at home. So if someone called in the middle of the night, I'd, I'd answer and direct them to a meeting or talk to them for 15 minutes. Best, best part of my life. And then at one point, it was, uh, I was sharing about this, an old timer looked at me. And at this point, by the way, I'm, I'm like 10, 15 years sober, somewhere in there. And I think I know it all. And uh, <laughs> this guy literally put me over a, the hood of a car in the parking lot. Some guy with like 50 years sobriety out of Chicago tall, skinny, 80-year-old man, just put me right over the car. And he said, you know, you don't need to confine service work to 12-step uh, meetings and alcoholics and drug addicts. And he walked away. Hmm. And, and I started reading our literature and I started reading other places, started talking to people about it. And I realized nowhere does it say that's the only place you can practice that principle. And I started, you know, just thinking about great men in history that I, you know, admired and other people I admired. And I was like, holy shit. I, let me see what happens when I do this at my office. Let me see what happens when I devote a portion of the rest of my day to these things. What happens if I start serving on the boards of nonprofits? What happens if I start doing things uh, in the in the food space to start helping people solve some of those problems that I that I saw as a food person. 
and changed my life. So for the last 15 years, the service work that I learned uh, as a young person in recovery um, has become the service work that I embrace them, you know, in every aspect of my life. And it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing privilege and it's changed, changed my life irrevocably forever. So yeah, I, I, you know, it, it was March of 1992 and, uh, it was, it was quite, quite powerful. And, uh, I, I will say, um, I'm, you know, I spend 25% of my time uh, and 25% of my dollars doing that work. Um, you know, it, I, I, I've accumulated, you know, I'm old and I haven't, I haven't died yet. And I've been reasonably successful in my, in my career from the outside looking in. Um, and, uh, and I only say that because it doesn't feel that way. I still feel like the same schmuck that got up every morning years ago and really didn't know what was going on. Um, but you know, you, you, you get to be on boards and, you know, the UN world food program named me a goodwill ambassador and you get to do, you know, bigger things that people look at and say, wow, I, I wish I, I wish I did as much as that guy. And it's like, what I do pales in comparison to some of the people who I look up to and admire who have literally devoted a hundred percent of their lives to these problems and these issues uh, and that's why I go to places by South by Southwest to talk about these issues, to, to humanize those folks, to, to, to name check them, to spend time with them, to amplify and elevate them, because maybe I have more followers in social. And so if I'm talking about, you know, you mentioned What's Eating America. If I do a story and I let Pam, who runs Arcadia uh, Farms in Virginia, talk about why she teaches you know, uh, veterans, especially homeless veterans, uh, to farm, not just because it helps them with their mental health issues, but because we have a desperate uh, farmer shortage <laughs> in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're losing more farmers every year than we're putting into the system. And we need to decentralize food. And she actually has a replicatable program for it that she's developed over the course of her career since leaving her uh, war correspondent career. She was a journalist. Um, I, I'm in awe of those people. You know, people like Pam are my heroes. And then she introduced me to a farmer who I got to spend some time with. Then he became my hero. You know, you, you start to talk about those people, you know, the vets that started Comfort Farms uh, down in Georgia, I believe, where they're actually using farming as a tool for treating uh, our brave, our bravest Americans, the ones who have been absolutely devastated by the effects of war, soldiers and, and first responders who've been in the most horrific conditions, but farming is an incredible tool to improve their mental health and give them a leg up. Um, those are the people that I I think are heroes and need to be recognized for their service work. I, I'm just a joiner. Here, here. Well, you're you're more than that. Uh, some of your accomplishments from the last couple of years are uh, incredibly helpful, and uh, there are a lot of people that thank you for that. That includes fighting for mom and pop restaurant operations uh, since the start of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I wanted to end things on a lighter note, Andrew, because your Substack is awesome. It's called Andrew Zimmern Spilled Milk. You post recipes, you. 
share your thoughts on food in a variety of creative ways. You host AMAs. And sometimes you write in manners that has nothing to do with food. And that's cool, too, especially for somebody who has the perspective that you do. I have a problem, Andrew, and I need to ask you about it right now. It involves bacon. I love bacon. But I have an issue when I go eat bacon out at a restaurant. I cannot get the restaurant to make my bacon extra crispy. I have told, uh, I have asked the servers to make it extra crispy. I have it, asked them to burn it. Yet it's sometimes- impossible. It, it's it's impossible. You're you you. I said before the planet was royally fucked. You're in a worse you're in a worse <laughs> position. Uh, first of all, thank you for the Substack thing. I started the Substack thing because I wanted to write about issues I wanted to write about when I wanted to write about them. Uh, then they started a video function. It's great for someone like me. Um, and, you know, people can go to my website at andrewzimmern.com and right across the top, there's a banner that has a lot of my, it's got my partner page, the, the charities I support, uh, the things that I try to get involved in uh, are all right there for people to click on. There's no paywall, uh, lots of free recipes, lots of free content. So I would encourage people to go to that site and, and make their decisions about where they want to spend, spend their time with me. Here's the problem with bacon. If I make you bacon at my house to order, in other words, a, a uncooked piece of bacon and lay it in a skillet or in a sheet pan and throw it in the oven to roast, I can cook it to however you like it. You want it loose and rubbery? Great. You want it somewhere in between that and crispy? Great. You want it dark brown, not burnt, but crack like paper thin stained glass? I can do that. Most restaurants, don't want to wait 15, 20 minutes every time they get a bacon order in. So they cook off pounds and pounds and pounds of bacon at a time. And then it's held in a, in a third pan with some bread at the bottom to absorb any oil, that, extra oil that drips. And then they take that bacon and they throw it on a sizzle pan in the oven and, uh, or they put it on a griddle, you know, like in a quick breakfast spot. The amazing thing about that is that when you twice cook bacon, you can never get it crispy enough. The the proteins have already knit around the fat. So it just dries out, which is different than crisping, where the fat that the bacon is cooked in keeps making it crispier because you've now drained away that, that fat. Well, I'm a little bit heartbroken, but uh, I know. So you got to go to a place that cooks your bacon. If if you are, and and I have extra crispy bacon people in my family and uh, they go through the same deal. They're like, why is it that when we have it at home, it's extra crispy and not burnt? And I'm like, because I go low and slow in an oven until it's just fully rendered and it fries in its own fat. And then we take it out and drain it. And it's like, yeah, blame, blame nature, blame mother nature. It's not the restaurant's fault. There's the answer. All right, Andrew Zimmern is an Emmy-winning and four-time George, uh, James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and humanitarian. His current endeavors include hosting the Magnolia Network's Family Dinner, serving as a goodwill ambassador for the UN's World Food Program, and his excellent substack, which is titled Spilled Milk. And he also has a new digital series called Wild Game Kitchen that premieres on OutdoorChannel.com coming up very soon. You can go to AndrewZimmern.com to find out more about all of those things, and make sure to check out his various talks at South by Southwest over the course of the week. 
More details there at sxsw.com. Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, Best of luck with all these uh, different uh, irons that you have in the coals. And good luck if you ever decide to go all the way vegan on your diet. Thank thank you very much. We're we're heading in that direction. I can can certainly tell you that. I've been down... I try to do, uh, I'm a big fan of vegan before dinner. And then if you are able to trans, you're able to do a dinner that's vegan, you've made it a whole day. So we've, I've eliminated a ton of meat from my uh, diet already, which is really nice. That's fantastic. Leading by example. Thank you so much, Andrew. Safe travels to and from Austin. Take care, Trey. Bye-bye. A reminder that you can check out all of my South by Southwest 2022 chats at booksonpod.com. There's a button at the top of the website that says SXSW 2022. You'll find all my conversations there. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Mm-hmm.